Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Um, let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach your gospel. I pray, Father God, that I have, uh, I have done the due, due diligence, Father God, that's required to stand before your people, Father. I pray, Lord, that I have prayed and that I have studied and that I have prepared, uh, God, exactly what you've called me to do, Father. That you have illuminated the scripture with your Holy Spirit, Father God. That I haven't done anything radical, Father God, but I've just simply gone where the text led me, Father. I pray, Father God, in every step of this, and they are baby steps, Father God, tiny little progresses through this book, Father. I pray with every single one, Father, that you open up for us truth. God, that, that's always been there, but that we never saw. I know you've done that for me, Father God. I never saw the depth of this. I thought it was about something else. And that you, Father God, have shown me that it's about, Lord, so much more than I ever could have even dreamed, Father God. I know, God, that's the beauty of your word, that it opens literally, Father God, like the flower that starts so small, Father God, with a bud and opens into something beautiful, God. And I know the scripture does that for us today, Lord. I pray, God, that I will communicate that well, that I won't... Father God, be a lax in my ability at this point, Father God, that you'll drive away any, any tiredness, Father God, that you'll strike it, Father God, any, uh, any apathy, Lord, in my heart, and that I'll have, God, that thunder and lightning, God, that I know every sermon desperately needs and that only you can give, Father God. I pray for that now, Father God. I pray, Lord, that, that in every church, Father God, where the gospel is preached today, Father God, that it's greeted, Lord, with warm hearts and with conviction, Father God. I pray, God, that, that you are doing things in us today, Father God, by way of the word that only the word can do. I thank you, God, for this. I thank you, Lord, for giving us the word. I thank you, Lord, for protecting it throughout the ages, Father God, and presenting it to a new generation. Thank you more than anything else, Father God, for the, for the, God, the source of the word, for the word itself, Father God, made manifest for Christ Jesus, God, whose sacrifice and blood, God, takes away the sins of his people. I ask you, please, God, as we today read this, Father, that we will always, God, have the crucified Christ in mind in every single verse, Lord. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I humbly pray, God, now. Amen. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter writes, he says, uh, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now that goes in line with what we talked about last week in verse 12, which says, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blasphemers about matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in the destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now I want to mention that because the, the emphasis, the focus of this is going to be on another aspect of this verse. And that just simply is, is that God is again reminding us that, simply put, nobody gets away with anything. He is a righteous and just God. And He is glorified in mercy and redemption, but He's also glorified in justice and wrath. That, that He is, receives no glory if people seem to have skirted the law, so to speak. But that just simply does not exist. Those who, who are wronging or have wrongdoing will suffer wrong as a just punishment for their sinfulness. It won't change anything. The fact that it seems delayed in our eyes. It is made manifest by God in His time always. Always. No one gets away with anything. God judges. He holds accountable. He always has. But then the second part of that verse is what we're really going to concentrate on. And especially that image, that symbol of 
of, of daytime are light. It's been turned on its head a little bit, but I want to talk about it in its entirety today. So y'all bear with me for just a few moments. The lost and the justified, we understand through the, all this time we've heard the scriptures preached and taught and we've read them ourselves. The lost and the justified are to have a different reaction to the light. Now what I mean by light, I mean the biblical symbol of the impact of the truth on fallen mankind. God uses Himself as the image of God. His Son is the light. In the end, in Revelation, in the, in the final state of all things, new heavens and new earth, there will be no sun. Because Christ will illuminate all of existence. The darkness that is endemic to this world, this part of this world, nighttime, for instance, is a grand symbol in creation, in the created order, of rebellion and sin. And it will cease to exist. So light is, in many ways for us as Christians, light is everything. Light is the gospel. Light is the truth. Christ explains in John 3, verse 19, He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come in the world, and people will love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Light came in the world. People don't love the light by nature. By nature we love darkness because we have evil works. And we instinctively understand that evil works need what? Darkness to hide them. I've, I've used an example before, but we always kind of chuckle at it. Um, my mama said it, your mama may have said it, that nothing go, good goes on after midnight, right? We understand that instinctively, don't we? Now, even in a modern day where people will rob your house in broad daylight in Smith County, right? Broad daylight. Back their truck up to your front door and load your possessions in it. We still fear robbers coming when? At night. When it's dark. When you don't see so well. We fear it. We fear it by nature. And we understand that the evil flock to it. And they always have. And when we were evil, when we were living in our sin, what did we do? We loved the nighttime. We did. We loved it because it hid our sin. So we understand this. This is, this is true. It's not just verifiably true because the Scripture said it. It's verifiably true because we, the Scripture says that and we've lived it out. At the same time, the intense and penetrating light of the Gospel is the antidote to the lingering, decimating sin in the life of the believer. We aren't just those who've received the light in terms of salvation, but we're those who receive the light in terms of salvation and our lives. We become children of the light who dwell in the light. And we crave the light because the light shows us where we are wrong. I know we, sometimes I think maybe we've got a wrong idea about things like holiness and discipleship. We have that lost idea of it and it's an idea of affirmation. The world wants affirmation, right? The world wants me to tell them that their lifestyle is okay. The world wants me to tell them that their ideas are sound. And if I have to depart from the Scripture to do that, the world's perfectly happy in that, aren't they? Perfectly happy. However, however, we as believers are different. We understand that within our flesh lingers sinfulness. And we want the light of the Scriptures to shine upon it and show us where we are wrong. We want, we are supposed to want, every day to look more like Jesus, right? 
And the only way you can do that is if He's constantly showing you your sin. Now, does that mean all believers do that? No, believers can be as, as shy in terms of the light as anyone else can. We don't always want God to show us where we're wrong. Sometimes we really, really, really like being wrong. And we like it so much, we can even fool ourselves into thinking that being wrong is being right, can't we? Everybody does it. What does it matter? Everybody sins. They do. They do. And that has nothing to do with God's command for us to be holy. Nothing at all to do with it. God illuminates the truth for us. As, as a brother said to me one time, it, was, it stuck with me so long. Was it what happens to you when every time you turn the page of the Bible, you weep? Because you see your sins in the scriptures. That is the relationship God wants to have with the light. Because the light refines us, it illuminates, it shows us where we're weak and where we need to be strong. Biblically, this is as it should be to the fact that believers are literally children of the light. As Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. For you are children of the light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We are literally, one of our definitions as Christians is that we are children of the light. Christians crave the light. We're made better by its illuminating influence and pointing out the wickedness and the remaining darkness in our personalities. We want to be dragged out in front. We confess our sins one to another. We confess our sins to the church if necessary. Why? Because we realize that wickedness slumbers and wickedness gestates in the darkness. And that the only way to remove that wickedness from our lives is to drag it out in front so that it's seen. The light shows believers the pathway that God has anointed for His people. As Paul describes in Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light. Another command. Not just that we are children of the light, but that now the command is to, what? Is to walk as children of the light. Now, once again, this is not new stuff here, folks. It's not something I just dragged up out of nowhere. We understand this. We've understood this for a long time. That God has meant for us to live very different lives under the blood, but that a lot of the impulses that linger in us tell us to stay as we were. To somehow embrace salvation without embracing discipleship. Somehow embrace salvation without embracing a command to live a God-like life. Embrace salvation without paying attention to what the Scriptures say about everything in that life. This is just a new, this is just a new name for it. That's all it is. It's a command to glorify God, to pursue God through our own personal holiness. What should we do? We walk as children of the light. Every day when I get up in the morning, my, the, the, the call on my life is walk as a child of light. Now I've said to you many times, we have no right being redeemed to look unredeemed. We have no right. There's no lingering right in me to be a horse's behind to the point that I bring infamy to the name of Christ. That's the old me. That's the old you. They're dead. We buried them in baptism. They don't get to rise. They stay dead. We spend the rest of our lives kicking them to make sure they remain dead. So we can walk as children of the light. There's a point to this. I promise there's a point to this. And here's the problem. 
The real problem is that, as, as I illuminate this point, is that the church doesn't get it, but the world totally gets it. The world's in love with this failing. The world's in love with the fact that we're supposed to be children of the light, and more often than not, the church doesn't look anything like children of the light at all. We like children of the darkness too. And all that does is tell them there's nothing to the gospel. Don't bother to listen. Go to hell, there's no hell. That's what we tell them when we do that. So, how can we do something about it? The old man or old woman was at home in the darkness. As Christ teaches in John 3, 20, saying, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. When we were lost, we craved darkness because we did not want those works exposed. Now, here's the deal. I know you understand this. When you were caught in sin, everybody probably knew. Who was the only one that didn't know? You, right? You thought you had everybody fooled. And you, in fact, had nobody fooled but yourself. We fear that self-image, that idea that we're okay. We fear the, the dissolution of that by light so much that we fear that light exposing that truth. But the new man or woman is the child of God illuminated. She means a child of gospel illumination that has brought uh, them out of the dominion of darkest iniquity to the kingdom defined by the light of Christ. We were once children of darkness. The, the light and the truth have brought us out of that. We've been brought to this brand new kingdom of light. And God means for us to live there. To, to, to be thankful that we're there. To pursue that light and no longer look back to the darkness. We are all in so many ways. So many ways. We are, we are Lot's wife. Liberated by the power of God from coming doom. And what do we always want to do? Glance back. Because whatever it is that's back there, whatever darkness it is that used to be us, still has a little bit of a hold on us. It has a hook in us. We just can't let it go. And the command today is this, is that let it go. Run to the light, to the kingdom of light as fast as you possibly can. As hard as you can. If you stumble, get, get up and run even harder. And never, ever, ever look back to the darkness. Never even glance back. Because it's not worth it. The lost world adores the dark because it hides sin and alleviates the emotional impact of shame because the deeds of unrighteousness are not exposed to open ridicule. Instead, the lost, as the author of Job points out in Job 24, verse 16, typically crave the darkness. As the verse says, in the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. In the end, the lost man flees, dark, flees from light to darkness because he doesn't know the light. He doesn't know the light. He doesn't know that the light is life. He doesn't know that the light is freedom from sin. He doesn't know that the light is freedom from shame. He doesn't know that in the end the light saves us and doesn't condemn us. By instinct the lost are to shun the light due to its revelatory power. But the children of the light, true gospel believers like us, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and His saving truth, must crave the light and the day because it has the power to make us more like our Savior. As I flock toward that light, as I seek the light within the Scriptures, as I do it with everything I have, as I don't read the Scriptures to build myself up and to rationalize away my sin, but I read the Scriptures to condemn my sin, condemn how I am, to look beyond that to something better, 
something that Christ truly died to make. As I do that, I am made more like Jesus. That's what happens. Look, and I know I'm, I'm going on and on about it. Maybe you're not being, you may, maybe something I'm not being clear enough about. But I'm here to tell you this. It is not something that just happens right now. I tell you it can begin right now. But it's going to happen every single day in the wee hours of the morning when you pour over the Scriptures. It's going to happen in your Bible studies. It's going to happen. It's going to happen of all weird things. It's going to happen from a meme with a Bible verse on Facebook. It's going to happen when the heart of a true believer illuminated by gospel light intersects with gospel truth. And every single day he's going to chip away at that hard shell and the stupid old ways of the stupid old man and the stupid old woman that just want to live for their flesh. They're living just the way they were made and that God's destroying that every single day. He's hammering away at it with the truth. And one day, guess what? It just The whole facade just cracks and breaks and is destroyed. All that because light pounded on it every single day. So what we talk about right now begins now, and I pray it does in somebody's heart right now. But I'm telling you, I want it to begin right now, but I want it to absolutely curse your darkness. I want it to, to literally chase away every bit of darkness that's in your life. And I want to do that every single day in devotion so that you crave it. Crave it. So that you want the Scriptures to tell you where you're wrong. The cow of even believers. Excuse me. Uh, Paul points out in 1 Thessalonians 5 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. However, even believers can find themselves temporarily enamored by their flesh and alienated from the illuminating power of the light that strives to separate the faithful from the sins of the flesh. We can get caught up in the mesmerizing effect of darkness. We can get caught up in that. I would love to say that once a, once a believer becomes a child of light, they just never look back again, but I know it, that it's not true. I know the examples in the Scripture teach the opposite of that. I know that the man, the very man who wrote this letter, Peter, struggled with a lingering darkness in his life. So we can be fooled like that. There's no doubt. Look, I'll use this as an example, just one from literature. And I hate to admit, I'm literally reading this to my kids right now. Okay, right now, like in, in class is what my kids are reading. But it just struck me when I read it, and I, wrote, and I jotted it down. In the Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne's um, uh, candidate for Great American Novel, by the way. The tortured pastor, um, uh, uh, Reverend Dimsdale, who is the... Uh, who is uh, caught in a deep and dark sin that he can just simply can never confess. He says this. He says, Were I an atheist, a man devoid of conscience, a wretch with coarse and brutal instincts, I might have found peace ere, peace long ere now. Nay, I never should have lost it. That's not Bible, folks. But I'll be blunt with you, it is absolutely precious in the life of a believer. To surrender to darkness in any way, shape, or form is to surrender our peace. And peace is precious. And we should never lose it. 
Peace is more important to us than anything else that God gives us in our lives. In this life here, peace is the benefit of the cross. As you may know, the reverend in the novel hid his sin with Hester Prynne and suffers pain and death because of his betrayal. It eventually takes his life. Christian peace is a precious commodity that comes only when men and women submit themselves to the power of light and truth. The only source for peace, for surpassing peace, for the peace that denies understanding for the rest of the world, is Christ, His light, His truth. That's the only source. A church that is unwilling to cast upon themselves the power of God is one that neglects the refining impact of the truth. As Malachi speaks of God in Malachi 3.2, saying that He is a, like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. Look, likewise, Paul is clear that the church's first duty is to judge itself. So church, we have a very special relationship with, with light and truth because we are those that first and foremost are caretakers of light and truth in a world of absolute and total impenetrable darkness. We have the light. We have the light. Now, let's look at our relationship with the light really fast. Seeing light is the impact of the truth of the gospel upon the life of a human being, right? That's light. That's what light is a symbol of. Paul's clear that the church's first duty is to judge itself. So first and foremost, we are purveyors of light within ourselves. Here, I've got to come to the pulpit and preach it. And I've got to be absolutely unflinching when it comes to light. God's right is always right. God's wrong is always wrong. And never shall we make any difference about that. It's always the way it is. Because light is most precious to those of us who are children of the light. He says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, For what have I to do without with judging outsiders? This is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. First and foremost, we take the truth and compare it to who? Ourselves and each other, right? We stand for the truth here, we enforce the truth here, and we do not waver when it comes to gospel truth. Ever. God spoke it, it is so. The church must constantly judge itself, applying the adages of the refining fire, our Lord, to each other. Invoking God's world word first on its members out of a loving desire to see, each, to see each person live in faithful obedience to the Lord. We don't preach the truth hard. And I might add, teach the truth hard and bluntly believe the truth hard. Because we hate each other, we do it because we love each other. Because the right path is always God's path. The right way is the one He illuminated with His gospel. If I've got a brother who's off the path, it is my duty to pray and teach and preach that brother back to the path. That's what we do. Because we love each other. The church's commitment to truth is not hypocritical when it's directed inwardly as well as preached outwardly, and it's fairly applied to all. So, we're not hypocrites in this. When I go out in the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, I'm not hypocritical, unless, of course, I don't come into your midst and proclaim exactly the same truth. And if I do that, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm incredibly consistent. If I go out there and condemn sin as the gospel condemns sin, as the gospel seeks to save men and women from their sins... 
And I come into this pulpit in your midst when nobody else is looking and literally condemn the same sins in your midst. And guess what? That's not hypocrisy. That's integrity. That's consistency. Okay? Also, our commitment to the truth does not just affect our relationship with the body of believers, but it is defining for the individual. Hypocrisy must be non-existent in the church, both externally and internally. Which means we don't preach it and teach it and believe it in a hypocritical way. And we also don't individually practice it hypocritically. And I guess the reason I'd say that is because I've done it myself. And you probably can remember the time when you did. When you sat in a, in a room like this and somebody said something that the scripture said and you amended it, but you were guilty of it. Instead of repenting, I knew intellectually it was right, but in my personal life, it was different. That's hypocrisy. So my hypocrisy can't just be externally as a church, but it's got to be internally right here inside this man. It's got to be internally inside of you too. Do you understand that? It's not just about my hypocrisy. Yes, the hypocrisy of the pastor is harmful to the church, there's no doubt, but do not think for a second that your hypocrisy goes unnoticed because it does not. Paul exhorts the church in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The light the, of, of truth, the gospel light that penetrates the darkest regions of the most sinful men and women is the obsession of the church. And we commit ourselves to constantly applying the word to every aspect of our lives. Every lingering sin and darkness, every neglect of action that the scripture called for in the light of a faithful child of the light. We're going to test ourselves. The, the best way, the only scriptural way to eliminate hypocrisies, do what? Constantly test ourselves. It's something Southern Baptists don't want to do. We don't test ourselves at all. Because we're afraid we might fail the test. Test ourselves. We're going to examine ourselves. Look, however, we live in strange prophesied time. This is the, the kind of the antithesis to this, or antithesis. However, we live in a strange prophesied time. The church shuns the light of day because it fears the oppression and reaction of sinful men and women and the culture that they produced. We hide because we're scared of them. We hide what we think and apologize. And literally set up church-wide institutions who do nothing but apologize for how we believe. Apologetics used to be defending the truth. Now apologetics is literally apologizing for the truth. We fear the light. And now the world has taken the light as their domain. Concurrently, the men and women discussed this passage, passage identified by Peter when he says, They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Boy, you are a depraved culture. When instead of... At the very least, folks, when we were incredibly wrong, we hid our wrong. Nowadays, people drag it out for everybody to see. They put it on Facebook. I knew it was a re really weird, weird world when my kids started high school years ago. And they would literally say things like, people will tell what they did the night before. Like everything. Look, hey, hey we did terrible things as, as kids now in high school. Just don't get me wrong. But if you'd asked me if I was there, I'd have lied to you. No, that wasn't me. There were no cameras anywhere. You get away with it. Right? Nobody had a camera outside their business. You do that? Mm -hmm. No. 
Guilty as sin. Sit in church next Sunday morning and hypocritically sing praises to God. I thought that was the worst it could get. Now people put it out there and brag about it. Not only do they not care, it has become their identity. This is who they are. You have to respect that. That is the weirdness of the world in which we live. No longer does light have the natural reaction in the lives of lost men and women that it must have. Light contrasted with how natural people knew they were supposed to be by the common grace of God that literally inscribes truth in the hearts of all men. Men knew to hide it because we knew instinctively it was wrong, right? We weren't saved by nature. It's just that God's grace is so deep and so true and so wonderful that it inscribes even on the hearts of lost men and women the fact that He is there. Literally, look at this. Paul teaches in Romans 2, 14-15, when Gentiles do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law of themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The work of the law is written on the hearts of all men, and all men lie who say there is no God at all. Every atheist is a liar. By definition. They know good and well that He is there. He's already revealed Himself to them in their hearts. No tribesman somewhere out there does not know that He exists. And no intellectual atheist can claim that He cannot be. As C.S. Lewis quipped, atheists express their rage against God, although in their view He does not exist. How do you get mad at somebody who's not there? But they're furious with Him. Flimsy, ridiculous lies. And the only reason I can curse them is because I've told so many myself. What's happening in our culture, though, is what Paul spoke of to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 4, 1-2. Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So, so we have a twofold aspect of this. I think I need to very quickly, just the remaining moments, make sure I flesh out for you. First and foremost, uh, what's going on right now in your culture is not just wrong people, but literally the teaching of demons. Now we understand from going, going back to the teaching of Moses that false gods were demons. He said this. We understand that to be true. But now we see full-fledged in the, in the, in the guise of, of respectability within the church, the preachings of demons that deny the basic tenets of the faith. Any so-called Christian denomination that refuses to preach and uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ has embraced the teaching of demons by definition. By definition, a demon is pastoring that denomination. And because of this, the, the power of the preaching of these demons, we now have leaders whose consciences are seared and we are producing mass generations of people with seared consciences. They can no longer care what God thinks. 
even though by nature they know what he thinks. These false teachers and their deluded acolytes do not fear the light any longer because their conscience has been seared. Painfully, it's become clear to me that the sin mankind once hypocritically denied and kept hidden is now bragged about in broad daylight. While our culture was once governed by a superstitious fear of punishment, and they will receive wrong as a proper payment for a life of rebellious and wicked wrongdoing. However, this deluded culture can no longer admit what Robert Murray McShane taught when he said, The nearer you take anything to the light, the darker its spots will appear. And the nearer you live to God, the more you will see your own utter vileness. King Solomon describes the benefit of the light of the gospel's wise, biblical understanding that warms the souls, inspires the minds, constrains the emotions, and enlightens the path to glory when he writes in Proverbs 2, 9-15, through a gospel passage. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity Every good path. We live in a culture that has made an idol out of false justice and fake equity. And the gospel provides real justice and true equity. You want equality? Embrace the gospel. We are all debauched with sin. Every man, woman, and child of every race, nation, and tongue. And the only salvation for each and every one of them is through the completed works of Jesus Christ on the cross for their sins. That is as equal as you get. Rich or poor, man or woman, it doesn't count. All that counts is what Christ did. In verse 10, For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard, will watch over you and understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, Forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. You rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Look what's declared today through the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves the souls of men. Is the different path. The nonconformist way that rejects the ease of the flesh for the eternal benefit of the way of Christ. Through the gospel, the lost man will know righteousness, true righteousness, true justice, true fairness, and the, and the lost man can find the only good and saving road. The only straight and narrow path that leads to redemption. When this happens to you, when you will admit the depth of sin and run to the gospel light for hope and not back in the daytime for rebellion, when the death of Christ on Calvary is personalized and it's deified, then wisdom has come in the heart of the unbeliever who now understands what moments before were beyond him. That is the beauty of the gospel. What is once madness, what is once insanity, what is once foolishness is transformed in an instant into preciousness into the vitality of eternal life forever with God. What you once cannot believe, you now cannot see how anyone does not believe. That's what happens when Christ acts on a heart in salvation. The scoffer, that bloodthirsty murderer of babies, the deviant in love with his braggadocio, will be delivered from evil. All those delivered from evil by the blood of Christ. 
from this world of perverted speech and all the ways of darkness. Delivery from all of that comes through the gospel. The completed work of Christ on the cross beckons to hearts today. And he wants one thing. Forsake the world and embrace the light that shines on the world of lost men. They may be blind to it, but Christ has not stopped shining. And He never will. He shines in the world of darkness today and He draws men to Himself and all they have to do is turn their backs to the world and their face to their King. Look, just because the world besmirches it does not mean that it has lost its saving power. Light calls today into darkness as Christ came to save this world from sin. Let's stand together.